Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Good morning, church. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and we invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Today's scripture comes from Mark 10, 32 through 52. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the, cu- the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over Lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throw off his Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Good morning, church. If you are in Kingdom Kids and you are in preschool, head over this way, and if you are in K-1, through head over this way. Most of you know the drill. Well, it is full in here this morning, 
And so uh, we're going to get a little, bit, a little bit friendly with one another this morning. Uh, COVID times are over. Um, I don't know, I didn't just declare that, but you know, it definitely feels that way in the room. So if you have space uh, beside you and you see someone looking, uh, don't, don't do one of these, you know, like try to pretend, get friendly, be, friend, be friendly to those around you and invite them in. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing uh, our series through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, this morning, we have, uh, we have the task of finishing the discipleship discourse. From chapter 8 to chapter 10 is called the discipleship discourse. And from next week, moving through Easter, we're going to be looking at Passion Week. Uh, many kind of joke that uh, the gospel accounts are really about Passion Week with long introductions. Um, and I like that. So next week, all the way through Easter, we'll be looking at Passion Week. But this morning, we're going to be considering what it means to be great, what it means to be great. When I say greatness, what comes to your mind? What fills your imagination? There's some dispute among pundits about who is the greatest, uh, who's the greatest leader of all time, who's the, favorite, the greatest artist of all time, who's the greatest band of all time. Uh, but one particular controversy has been kind of settled, who's the greatest uh, football player, uh, people are saying it's Tom Brady. Now the only thing that he hasn't done is to do a farewell tour of all the teams in the NFL, at which point he will, in fact, retire the greatest. Um, an artist went so far as to saying in the, in the lyrics to a song about Muhammad Ali, look, I'm the star up in the sky. I'm the mountain peak up high. Hey, I made it. I'm the world's greatest. But probably one of the most significant and polarizing is this one. LeBron James, Michael Jordan. Uh-oh, we're going to get in trouble this morning. And I came across an article on, on Twitter, and uh, usually sports stuff I'm moving pretty quick by, but it caught my eye because the heading of the little uh, meme was surpassing greatness. And this title was attributed to LeBron James. Now, while he isn't the greatest and Michael Jordan is the greatest... One thing that they both have in common is we are measuring them by their accolades and their accomplishments. See, I actually believe that we are hardwired for greatness. So much so, uh, Pastor Rob brought this to my attention, and he's in Kingdom Kids serving us faithfully back there, uh, but he brought this story to my attention just about the irony of our pursuits of greatness. Uh, it's an article about the greatest bowler of all time. Listen to this. It's an interview covering his retirement. He looks into the camera and says, love me or hate me, you watched. And then he bowls a strike. The irony, of course, is by a show of hands, who watched professional bowling over the past 30 years? Intentionally. <laughs> but I believe we are all hardwired to be great. We come preloaded with a sort of glory hunger. We're hungry for glory, and we try to quench that glory hunger with all sorts of different things. Maybe it's position or platform, power or privilege, prestige or preeminence. Maybe you want to be pretty. Maybe you can't do that, so you're just going to be petty. Popular or praiseworthy, polished or perfect. That took longer than it should to find all those P's. But this morning, I want us to consider from the truly great one what it means to be great. So this is where we're headed. Our main idea this morning is Jesus calls us to follow him 
serve others, and experience true greatness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, creator of all things, ruler of all things, Lord of lords, King of kings, we come to you, and we are a needy, needy, needy people. Father, help us understand what it means to be great. Help us be in awe of your surpassing greatness. And Father, I pray that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us. By your spirit and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I mentioned earlier, the discipleship discourse runs from chapter 8 to chapter 10. And when you read through the whole discipleship discourse, a couple little, little things to point out. It begins with the healing of a blind man and ends with the healing of a blind man. And in between, at the threads, you have Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection three times. So blind man, blind man, and foretelling his death. And here, we jump into the story in Mark 10. We've been on this kind of road trip with Jesus, you know, some uh, conversations side to side. It was pointed out to me this week that when the main character speaks up, you ought to listen. But they're, doing, they're, they're heading now toward Jerusalem. In verse 32, it says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus has his eyes fixed on Jerusalem. His time has come. What he came here to do, he will do. And he's going up, I think, in a couple senses here. He's going up because uh, geographically, he's, there's an elevation of about 3,500 feet that they're walking. So he's literally heading up. But also, if you are familiar with your Bible, the Old Testament is full of these, these uh, stories where something happens when we go up, when we are ascending up words, usually a sacrifice. This is where the high places would have been in the Old Testament. And Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, going up. And it says that the disciples who are kind of watching him go up, have two responses. One, they're amazed or astonished. And the other, they're afraid. They're afraid. They were well aware of the tension. They're watching him walk directly into danger. And here for the third time, and the final time in Mark, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and makes just in, in vivid imagery, exactly how he's going to die. It's almost like a camera, uh, just getting a little bit more in focus for them. And we'll see, they can still completely miss it. But here we go. He says, he takes the 12 aside, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. In verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Something to notice. He says, we are going up. Their fate is enmeshed in his. If you follow Jesus, your life is enmeshed in his as well. He is going up. The description is clearer. The place Jerusalem, the people, the chief priests and scribes condemn him and hand him over to the Gentiles. So now he's telling him that 
our people, the Jews, are going to hand you over to the Romans. Hand Jesus over to the Romans. Then he talks of his humiliation and the details. There's going to be mocking and spitting and flogging and ultimately killing. And then on the third day, he will rise. This is the setting. They're on the road. And this seems like a really good time for James and John to ask their follow-up question. <laughs> if, there's, if there's something that we know about the Scriptures, one of the ways they are authentic to us is because the writers of the Scriptures do not paint themselves in favorable light. No one would have made this story up unless this actually happened. They paint themselves in a very, very unfavorable light. So that brings us to our first point, the greatness we seek. Starting in verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in glory. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. They want a blank check. They still want Jesus on their own terms, which all through the discipleship discourse has been, a, has been a tension for them. Do we want Jesus on our own terms? Are we asking him to deliver on our own vision of greatness? What do you want me to do for you is his response. I love the kindness of Jesus. Just, just the kindness of Jesus. To be so patient with them and forbearant with them. If this was me, I would have immediately disregarded it. It's like when your kid comes up to you and asks you a question uh, for the hundredth time. Like, my, my knee jerk is just no. Just no. But Jesus stops, takes the time to actually engage them. See, the disciples want to rule. And they think that he's marching to Jerusalem to set up a throne. But he's marching to Jerusalem to set up a cross. They're missing it still completely. So he asked them, what do you want me to do? And they respond, we want greatness. We want to be great. We want a throne. But Jesus knows their request is very naive. That there is no glory without suffering. There is no glory without a cross. They're still missing it. He tells them, you don't know what you're asking for. He continues in verse 38. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Greatness only comes through a cup in a baptism. You do not know what you're asking for. So here, what is this cup and what is this baptism? The cup, all through the scriptures, is a metaphor for God's wrath. For God's wrath. Psalm 75, 8 says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So Jesus asked them, are you able to endure what I am about to endure? See, up until this point in history, there have been many, many, many crucifixions. There have been many executions that are similar in type 
to Jesus. But what makes his utterly unique, brothers and sisters, is he drank the cup of God's wrath to the bottom. Baptism. The baptism language is this idea of the pouring out, the immersive experience, the encompassing nature of the crucifixion, the suffering that Jesus will endure on our behalf. We get an idea of this suffering servant from Isaiah, which is really popping off the page in Mark's gospel. In Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds you're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. James and John will, just as Jesus tells them, they will experience great suffering. For James, he will be beheaded. For John, he'll be exiled to the Isle of Patmos. But Jesus drank the cup and the, bapti- and the baptism so that they can say with Paul, momentary and light affliction. Momentary and light compared to the glory that is to be revealed because Jesus drank the cup to the bottom. So while this conversation is going on, you got to imagine this. You know, they're, they're just walking down the road. They hurry up, they catch up with Jesus, they're having that conversation. And then you have, you know, the other ten hanging back a little bit. Look at those guys. Can you believe them? They are indignant, the text says. But I don't think they're indignant because, can you believe, what a silly question. I actually think they're indignant because they beat them to the punch. That's the greatness we want. And even Peter, who's like the eyewitness account given to Mark for the gospel of Mark, uh, Peter isn't mentioned, and Peter is still probably a little salty about this. He's like, I can't believe I wasn't in on the, because this is the trio. We're the trio, we're the tripod. This is what we do. Peter, James, and John, but Peter isn't there. The other ten, they're indignant. And Jesus turns around. He knows. He knows what's going on. He's like, all right, all right, everybody calm down. We obviously need to have a little bit of a talk about greatness. See, Jesus here does not squelch their desire. He redefines it. Or as C.S. Lewis has said, it's not that your desires are too strong, it's that they're too weak. They're too small. You gotta think a little bigger. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He says in verse 42 of the text, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles or pagans lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. By the way, think about that. He's giving them the teaching while illustrating it with his action. Simultaneously. That's amazing. They come with the question. Well, if these were pagan rulers, they would have just shut you down. Get away from me. You don't know, what are you even talking about? The glory's for me. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't lord it over them. He does something very different. Jesus says that they will oppress, crush, dominate. This is pagan leadership. This is pagan greatness. James, in his letter, will call this demonic 
when you find yourself in any position, do you lord it over them? Do you lord it over them? And this has always been the story. We're kind of hardwired for greatness, but our greatness is frustrated all the time. And we're like, ah, could have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those pesky kids or, you know, whatever it is. We're always frustrated by it. Consider uh, the fall happens. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are going to have some dynamics. Those are going to be real. And Adam's going to be tempted to lord his position over his wife. And then they have a baby. What does the baby do? Lords it over Abel. I'm going to crush Abel. His sacrifice was better than mine. No, no, no. Greatness. Ham takes advantage of his father Noah. It's a thrilling story. Laban cheats Jacob after Jacob cheated his parents. Joseph's brothers sell him off. He's getting too much greatness. We need to get that greatness out of here. And we're going to cover it up, kill a goat, put some blood on the thing. It's going to be a whole situation. Covered it up. King David abused power. Abused power. Took a woman that was not his, which was, as we're reading in Samuel, a pattern of his that led to his undoing. And then he ends up having to murder Bathsheba's husband to cover it up. But if we're not careful, we can look at these examples. Oh, yeah, mm, mm-hmm, they're so bad. They are not the worst of us, friends. They are us. They are us. And Jesus says in 1043 at the beginning, he says, but the Gentiles, the pagans, they lord it over, but it shall not be so among you. Disciples, friends, brothers, sisters, it shall not be that way among you. Our fallen, default, living definition of greatness is power over. And Jesus, the greatest man alive, who indeed is still living, says that greatness is not what we think it is. So, point two, great, the greatness of Jesus Humor me for a second. Do a little thought experiment. If you want to be great at something, truly great, you're probably going to need some help. Okay? If you want to be a great electrician, you'll probably need to find a great electrician and go uh, apprentice under them. Learn from them. If you want to be a great doctor, you're going to have to learn uh, by reading a lot, being in school for way too long, and you're going to have to learn by watching and mimicking great doctors. If you want to be a great father, you're going to need to get yourself around some men who are good fathers, and you're going to have to learn from them. If you want to be a great writer, you need to immerse yourself in good writing, pick up a pen, and start writing, right? And if you want to be great, which I would argue everyone in here does, you need to listen to the greatest man alive. And if you want to know what humans are for, you might want to consider asking their creator. And here on the road, making their way to Jerusalem, they ask this question. I wonder if they even recognize in that moment they're talking to both. The greatest man to ever live and their creator. That's amazing. What does greatness look like, Jesus? And Jesus, in whose image they were created, tells them 
Let me, let, Jesus says, let me teach you something. Let me teach you something. Jesus called them to him and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones out there exercise authority over them, but it, not, it should not be this way among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You have heard it said that greatness means platform. But I tell you, you must be a servant. You have heard it said that greatness means impressiveness. But I tell you, you must be a servant. You have heard it said that greatness means being powerful. That greatness means no one gets to tell you what to do. But Jesus says, whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Pagan greatness is this, your life for mine. True greatness is this, my life for yours. See, you may think as an impulse of our current moment in society that this is dehumanizing. But let me encourage you, Jesus says this is rehumanizing. Rehumanizing. Jesus is fully human as we were meant to be but have never been. In fact, if you think about it, all the way back in the garden, Adam is told to do a couple tasks in the garden. To work and subdue. Pre-fall. Pre-fall. No sin has entered the world and he's told to get busy doing what? Serving. To get busy serving which is the same language used of the temple and the Levitical priesthood, service. And here, in the same connotation, for us, we're told by Jesus Christ himself, we are a royal priesthood. And we're here on this earth to do one thing. Serve. Serve. Heard a pastor call this sermon, serve their socks off. And I like that. But why and how? Verse 45, which is really the hinge of the gospel. Up until this point, we've known some details surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus. But here, Jesus himself tells us why. Why does he die? Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The gospel of grace is not about what we do for God, but about what God has done for us in the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. When you enter a room, is everyone there for you, or are you there for everyone else? Think about it. The Son of Man, he says, for even. I want to camp on that. We're going to camp on some weird words. For even. The Son of Man. Daniel 7 says of the Son of Man. Listen to his pedigree, if you will. This is what it says of the Son of Man. He says, I saw night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Think about this. For even, the argument is from greater to lesser. The greatest, the greatest has condescended and taken it all the way down. For even the Son of Man, the one to whom all service is due, came not demanding service, but washing feet. Let that sink into our souls. Wow. The one to whom all peoples and nations and languages should serve, and that would be a privilege. He didn't come demanding it, but he came giving it. He took the lowest menial task, but he went still lower. And the service runs deeper, deeper. He gave his life a ransom for many. When you hear the word ransom, you think of a kidnapping and like a bootleg ransom note. You know, like what magazines were they possibly looking at to find these shape of letters? Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's all right. But let's, let's think about this. He gave his life a ransom. Ransom, it would not have been lost on the original reader. They would have known that we are talking about something that was paid for the release of a slave. Something that was paid for the release of a prisoner. But here's a little bit of a problem. Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8 say this. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. But this was no mere man <laughs> who was going to ransom us. Jesus Christ has paid our ransom in absolute full. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Corinthians 6 says, For you are not your own, but you have been bought with a price, even the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is, this is profound. What would happen when the ransom was paid? What would happen? The slave just freed from bondage, turns and gives their life to the liberator. Their life to the liberator. The beneficiary turns and gives everything back to the benefactor. The greater the debt, the greater the acknowledgement of the grace of the benefactor. But there's a problem here for uh, the disciples. They don't even see their need. In fact, they're as close as you can possibly be to Jesus and still arguing about greatness. Friends, if any of you are considering ministry, vocational or whatever it may be, beware. Proximity to Jesus does not absolve you of a glory hunger. If you stop pursuing Jesus as the object of these things, you're going to fill that void. And how the great ones have fallen. Which leads us to the blind man. How does the blind Bartimaeus fit into all this? 
So we're going to look at the greatness of Bartimaeus. He really is, at the end of it all, at the end of the discipleship discourse, he is here to show us what the right response to Jesus looks like. What the right response. He's actually the only person healed in the Gospel of Mark who has been given a name. He's got a name. Verse 46, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Jericho is about 15 miles from Jerusalem, so it's in the direct path of Jesus. And Bartimaeus undoubtedly has heard stories of Jesus. But if we look at his condition, his condition could not be worse. He's both blind and a beggar. He does not have eyesight. The commentator points out he doesn't have eyesight, but he's got some insight. I like that. (laughs) Meanwhile, the disciples have eyesight and no insight. So he's sitting by the road, and he begins to cry out. What does he cry out? He doesn't cry out for a throne. He cries out for mercy. He cries out for mercy. Verse 47, and when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth, it was Jesus of Nazareth coming through, he said, he began to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him, be silent, be silent. And what did he do? Cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And I think the posture of Bartimaeus is because he knows Jesus owes him nothing. Jesus owes him nothing. He's crying out for mercy. And so the crowd... uh, The crowd tells him to be quiet, but he keeps crying. And then verse 49, Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. Thank God he stopped for me and stopped for you. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And then the crowd who was in one minute telling him to shut up now has told him to get up. Get up, he's calling you. Don't you hear him? So they bring him over to Jesus, the fickleness of this crowd, which is how they're portrayed all Gospel of Mark. The fickleness of the crowd, verse 50 says, and throwing off his cloak, sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, which, by the way, is this is the exact question he just got done asking the disciples. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. His faith was in the right person, and it made him well. And immediately, the text says, he recovered his sight and followed him on the road. The text begins, Jesus out ahead on the road, and ends, Bartimaeus, recognizing his need, and turning and following Jesus. We were blind, but now we see, and because we see, we serve. Uh, Dane Ortland kind of summarizes our passage really, really succinctly. This is what he says. James and John asked Jesus for glory. Bartimaeus asked for mercy. God the Father asked Jesus to lay down his life, securing both glory and mercy 
for those who admit their blindness and cling to Christ. It's a wonderful, wonderful text. Let's conclude this way. Jesus calls us to follow him, serve others, and experience true greatness. We're going to briefly apply in three different buckets. Bear with me. Follow. Uh, Brothers and sisters, are you following Jesus this morning? Are you on the road following Jesus? He is maybe not the king you expected. Maybe not even the king you wanted, but I can guarantee you he's the king you need. And he has given himself a ransom to us. Are you cocky or contrite this morning? Do you, eh, I don't have any need. I'm pretty self-sufficient over here. I need a little bit of Jesus, and you know, maybe that'll help me out a little bit in some of my different projects I have going on. Or are you on your face, clinging to the, merc- the merciful Savior that is Jesus? Hmm. The disciples want to sit. Bartimaeus wants to see. Wants to see. So I would ask you, be honest this morning. Cry out for mercy, and the king will call you. He will stop and call you to himself. But why follow Jesus first? I think this is very, very important for us. Otherwise, service will crush you. If you do not follow Jesus first and receive the grace of Jesus Christ, service will crush you. This is what I call service with a dead end. Oh, I'm really trying to serve him. I'm trying to serve him. But people aren't very grateful. Dead end. Or I'm just trying to serve, but no one really sees it. Nah, I'm not going to do that anymore. Dead end. That service will crush you. You will never get the, the props. You will never get the applause that you're looking for and hoping for. The greatness that you hope for. But instead, you need Jesus first. Follow Jesus and then know that all your service goes directly over their heads to the Lord himself. And that liberates you. That frees you. The Lord sees. The Lord sees. You pick up that bit of trash that nobody saw, so you also don't need to put it on Instagram. We can serve when no one's watching because the Lord is watching. There's no dead end there. Grace has blown the end off the neighborhood and said, come to me all who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Rest from trying to scramble to seek that approval. Mm. Grace makes us servants, and the more of grace we drink, the more service we render. Okay, second, serve. I kind of, they're blurry. They're blurry. Bear with me. Uh, Why do we have serve teams at the King's Church? You can't talk about service and not serve teams. We could call them greatness teams, but they would be confusing because (laughs) uh, we have serve teams not to get stuff done. The, the, the serve teams that we have here are because the church is the gymnasium where we practice getting under the bar of service to go out and be servants, to be servants in our homes, to be servants at our school, to be servants at our workplace. It's, 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 it's not about the, you know, bringing the elements out. I'm so grateful that that happens. It's not about those things. It's not about hospitality. It's not about any of those things in particular. It's about the virtue formed into servants over time. Because over a long enough period of time, I don't need them anymore. (laughs) And I don't need them anymore. I actually don't need the training wheel because over time the Spirit has conformed me more into the image of Christ and I am a servant. I remember this. My my, my father, bless his heart, um, he was a servant. That was the most impactful thing about him growing up. He was a servant. 
He was listening to the Super Bowl with headphones in on the roof of the church, blowing that joker off. Why would you do that unless you had been so captured by the beauty of Christ and what he'd done for you? My life is service, and these commentators are right. It changes you, and if it hasn't softened you, you haven't experienced it. If you think you're above something, brothers and sisters, we got to go low. We go low. That's what we do. Okay, serve. Greatness. The last thing, do you want to be great? I think you do. And I think Martin Luther King summarizes this beautifully, and I couldn't have said it better in my way, so we're going to close with this. This is what he says about greatness. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness. By giving that definition of greatness, it means that everybody in this room, all of us, can be great. Because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato or Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know about Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics in physics to serve. You only need, this is the only prerequisite, you only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love, and you can be that servant. I love that about the gospel. The gospel says, see your need, come to Christ, and everybody can get in. And not only can people get in by the skin of their teeth, but they can actually be great. You can actually be great by serving. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll end there. There's more that could be said, but I pray that as you leave this place, even today, have conversations. What is it, what is it, what is it even like to be your friend? What's it like to be married to you? Are, you? are you leading with a heavy hand, or are you serving the socks off of those around you by God's grace? Let's pray together. Uh, Father... I'm so grateful that your word does not return void without accomplishing exactly what you desire. Father, I pray that the the word that was just spoken, anything that was not of you, let it fall to the side. But Father, would your truth take root in our hearts? Would it be impressed upon us? Would it sink in deeper to where we can't help but with great joy give our lives away for the good of others, and in that find lasting fulfillment and joy that no circumstance can touch. Uh, Father, we're so grateful that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.